Thanks, guys. Good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, if you'll turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers will come and give you one. Just raise your hand. You're welcome to keep the Bible. If you're visiting with us, we're glad to have you. You're welcome to fill out anything on the communication card. If we can be of help to you in any way, let us know. A couple things. As we approach the Easter season today, in the history of the church, we celebrate Palm Sunday, and this is the the week that we call Passion Week, the week of Christ's suffering, which culminated with what we call Good Friday. Not so good for him, obviously, but Good Friday is that day that we celebrate the sufferings of Christ on the cross in a very special way, though we should be doing that year-round, preaching the gospel to ourselves. So certainly want to encourage you to try to be here Friday night. I assure you that as a believer, you will be blessed to focus on the sufferings of Christ. But then a couple things I want you to pray for this week. I want to put out to us um, kind of as a church a seven and seven challenge. And that is all this week at seven in the morning and then at seven in the evening. If you'll take a moment, it doesn't have to be exactly at seven, but we're going to be praying for the Holy Spirit to be working in our church, especially this Easter season. Last Christmas, we had almost a thousand people, and we anticipate that there may be a lot of people again this coming Sunday. And so God does his work through prayer and through the spirit. In Acts chapter four, this is what I want you to pray. As they thought about the suffering the church was going through, the church gathered together and they prayed, Lord, grant your servants to speak your word with all confidence. And then it says, when they prayed, the place was shaken and they spoke the word with boldness. And with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection. So there will be a lot of people that will come through the doors next week. Be praying that the Holy Spirit is going to work in their hearts, that it will be a life change, not just a chance to try out a new Easter outfit. So try to remember to pray 7 in the morning, around 7 in the evening, maybe in the morning, your quiet time, the evening with your family. A couple other things. We have the inserts in the bulletin. I want to encourage you. That's what they're they're for. They're right at the, the back door. There's a whole stack of them. Just pray for who God might want you to invite. No pressure. Just God may put it in your heart to say, hey, you know, I just want to invite you to the service. If they come, they come. If they don't, nothing lost. We're just trying to extend the love of Christ and invite people to come and hear the story of Jesus. So be in prayer for that. One other thing, though, is because we're anticipating so many people I'm going to ask some of you to come to the 8 o'clock service. In fact, I'd like to ask a number of you to come to the 8 o'clock service today. 8 o'clock. Remember, we're asking you to do it once. I mean, on, on Easter Sunday, even Jesus was risen. I mean, you could, you could get up a little earlier, you know, after all that he did for us. So if you wouldn't mind, because this has happened. People have come in, the parking lot's full, and they've left. And we'd hate to have someone who really needs to hear the gospel show up and and not have a seat or have a parking spot. So if you're able to come at 8 o'clock, that would be great. So with that, I want you to look with me in Genesis chapter 15, and we're going to pray together as we begin our time in the Word. Father, thank you that Christ is risen, and thank you that we can focus on what he did for us and its wonderful benefit for our souls. So may the Holy Spirit work this morning to minister to us and to make real to us the very presence of the Lord Jesus. 
We know that Jesus is here in our midst because he said, where two or three gather, I will be in your midst. And so as Christians, we gather in the name of Jesus to focus on him, to worship, to learn, and to listen. And now I pray that your Holy Spirit will speak through your word. I pray that you will change our lives. Everyone is here by divine appointment, and we want the word of God to impact us. Me too. Take a moment just in silence to pray for yourself and those with you, and then maybe for someone that you plan to invite. Just take a moment to pray. Father, you have heard us as your children lifting up our voices together. And I pray that you will bless your word and bless our time together. And may the Holy Spirit's power work to bring healing to broken lives, to hurting people. Father, may we all be encouraged and equipped and strengthened this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, last week we saw the Lord work in Abram's life in a wonderful way. Remember, he was used by God to go and rescue his nephew Lot from the kings of the east who had come and kidnapped Lot. But, you know, think about where Abraham is in his journey. He has left a very big metropolis city, very wealthy, very secure, and now he's living in a tent in a a foreign land, and God's been telling him, you're going to have this land, and you're going to have kids, and you're going to become a great nation. You're going to be spread out like the dust of the earth. But Abraham has just come out of what, what we would say is a victory, like, wow, he won a battle. But at the same time, sometimes when we come out of a spiritual victory, we sort of can lose our way. And a good example of that is if you've ever read the story of Elijah. Remember when Elijah had that great victory on Mount Carmel? He called fire down from heaven, and he conquered the prophets of Baal. But right after that, when he found out that Jezebel was trying to kill him, he fled into the wilderness. And out of fear, he said, oh, God, please take my life. And I think what we're going to see at the beginning of this chapter is Abram's afraid. Now, think about this. Why wouldn't he be afraid? He lives in a tent, and he's really rich, and he's surrounded by pagan people who probably aren't happy that he's there. He's just fought a battle. Yeah, he won a battle, but God in his mercy sometimes knows when we need to hear a word of encouragement and he'll come along in a very personal way and he'll say, don't be afraid. And that's what the Lord's going to do for Abraham. The Lord does this throughout the scriptures. In fact, with the apostle Paul in Acts 18, he had been beaten so many times. He was so afraid in Corinth that it says the Lord appeared to him in a vision and said, don't be afraid, Abram. So picture Abram. He's just just won this battle. He still doesn't have any kids. And he's like, what's going on here? These people are dangerous that I live around. I don't have any kids. I'm an easy target, and he's afraid. But look how God comes and ministers to him in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. So, so somehow he has this kind of trance. Maybe he's in his tent, and he just suddenly God reveals himself to him. Look what God says to him. He says, don't fear, Abram. I'm a shield to you. 
Now, that would be really helpful right now because who's going to protect me? I don't live inside of a city wall. Who's going to protect me? Well, God says, Abram, I'm a shield to you. Don't fear. I'm a shield to you. You know, God is saying that to you and to me. Don't don't fear, Christian. I'm a shield to you. What are you afraid of this morning? But then he also says, not only am I a shield to you, but Abram, your reward shall be very great. Now, unfortunately, the King James Bible translates this, I am your great reward. And that's probably not the best way to read this. I don't, even though that's true, God is our reward. It, it's probably better to be translated, your reward shall be very great. Now, what would that have meant to Abram? Hey, Publishers Clearinghouse, your reward. Well, remember what God had said to him. I'm giving you this land. You're going to be a great nation. I'm going to bless you and make you great. You're going to have kids. You're going to have descendants more than you can count. And he's not seeing anything. He's like, okay, I don't own this land. There's bad men in this land. I don't have any kids. Really? And God's going, Abram, remember what I said. Your reward shall be very great. And I want you to think of that as a Christian. In what way does God say that to us? Your reward. And, and what comes to your mind when you think about the great reward that awaits you and me? And we'll come back to that. So Abram naturally is like, okay, God, I don't get it. Look at verse 2. And Abram said, oh, Lord God, what will you give me? Since I'm childless. Well, think about that. Don't be afraid, Abram. You're going to be blessed. You're going to have a great reward. And he's like, really? I don't even have a son. I'm going to die in these tents. And then, then what? So he did what they did back then. And this is what they did back then. If you didn't have any sons of your own, you would adopt one of your servants. And you would leave your inheritance to him. And so Abraham had a servant by the name of Eliezer. And Eliezer in Hebrew means God is my help, right? Or God is help. And so Abram looks to God. He says, how are you going to give me a great reward? I, I don't even have any kids. All I've got is Eliezer. So look, he says, what will you give me? I'm childless. Verse 3, the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, since, since you've given me no offspring, I don't have any children, this guy born in my house, he'll be my heir. And, and what Ab- what's Abraham doing? He's, he's leaning on his own understanding. He's doing what we do sometimes. We help God out. God says, you're going to have a son. And Abraham's like, that didn't work. But God, I got a great idea. Isn't it funny how we offer God our good ideas? You know, I've even offered to become part of the quadrinity. You know, we kind of expand. And he's like, no, I got this. Right? So sometimes we lean on our understanding. That's in I, don't, I wouldn't say this was wrong, but, but Abram just needed to know, hey, listen, don't let circumstances block the way. Trust me. So the Lord comes to encourage him. Look at verse 4. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. Now, by this time, Abram's 90 and he hasn't had any kids. So it's like, really? Pretty unrealistic that I'm going to have any kids. But God goes, don't be afraid. No, it's not him. But then God sometimes tries to encourage us. So God says, Abraham, come here. Let's go outside. Look at verse 4. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him. He won't be your ear. Verse 5. Or verse five. He's there. He said, let's go outside. God took him outside. Now, you're picturing God goes, now be sure to turn off the TV and be sure to lock the doors while we go out. Outside of what? Abraham lives in a tent. 
But think about this. He's out in a tent in a deserted place in the Middle East. Dark night. If you've all been out camping, right, on a dark night, you go outside and you look up at the lighting. So God brings him outside. And he says, look towards the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And I doubt everyone went, one, two. God's like, I didn't mean. No, he wasn't. He got this. He says, see all these stars up there? They're innumerable. So shall your descendants be. You see, see God going out of his way to say, Abram, you've got to trust me. Earlier, he said, Abram, your descendants are going to be more than the dust of the earth. Now, he says, Abram, your descendants are going to be more than the, the stars of the sky. And he's like, I only have one kid. But verse 6 is a very, very important verse in the Bible. I want you to note this. This verse is quoted five times in the New Testament. Genesis 15.6. Every Christian should know Genesis 15.6. This is a very profoundly important verse. It says this. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. There's a lot to say from that verse. I want to spend some time on it. Number one, this verse threw me off for years because I was reading it naturally, as, as we would, sequentially. When I read the word then, I go, okay, so God did this, then Abram did this, okay? The problem is, the way this is structured in Hebrew, that's really not a good translation. This is not a sequential thing. This verse is not saying that it was at this point that Abraham first became a believer, okay? So it's probably better translated. It's not the normal narrative structure. It's probably better translated. Now, Abram believed in the Lord, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now, let me explain what this means. This is Moses' commentary on Abram's character. It's not this happened right then, okay? Now, here's why this is important. What Abram did is he made a decision to believe in the Lord a long time ago, okay? This did not, he did not get saved in this verse when it says he credited him for righteousness. So it's not this happened, then this happened. This is simply saying, you and I need to know this. So we're talking about the faith of our fathers. Abram believed in the Lord. It probably happened way back when God first appeared to him in Genesis 12 when he said, leave Ur, because the Bible says, Abram, by faith, obeyed God and left Ur. So here's what I want you to think about. This is what it means to be a believer, right? People will say this to me all the time. I'll say, how long have you been a believer? Oh, I've always believed in God. No, you didn't. You can't always believe in God. This is a decision of the will, okay? Part of the problem here is the word believe in English is very different from this word. The word believe in the Bible is not an intellectual assent to something, okay? We do that all the time. I'll say, I don't believe in Easter Bunny, right? Well, what does that mean? All that means is you don't intellectually assent that there's a, maybe you do, but we can talk. But if you say, do you believe in George Washington? Yeah, I believe in him. But that's not what this means. To believe in something in English just means to acknowledge that it's, that it's a fact, to just assent to it. Yeah, I believe there's a, a George Washington. The word believe in the Bible means to consider something dependable. It's better to be translated to, to put your trust in, 
And the way that this becomes evident, if you really trust something, you're going to act on it, right? So, so remember the story I told you about the tightrope walker who, who went across a cliff to another cliff across a river, and everyone cheered for him, and he said, how many of you believe I could do that again, but carry someone? And everyone said, yeah, you could do that. That would be awesome. Do that. And he goes, okay, who will volunteer? And no one would do it. You know what? They didn't believe biblically believing. Because to believe in the Lord means to, to hear something from the word, the message of, of God, and then to respond by trusting it and committing yourself to it and retaining it and depending on it for the rest of your life. That's what it means to become a believer in Christ. Okay? So I'm not asking you this. Do you believe in Jesus this morning? I'm asking you this. Do you believe Jesus? Have you become a believer in Christ? And you might say, well, why all the drama, brother? Who cares whether I am? Well, look at the rest of the verse. Abram believed in the Lord. And this is what God does when you believe in him. God reckoned it to him as righteousness. God credited righteousness to Abram. Now, listen, here's why that's important. The Bible says it's appointed unto men once to die, then comes judgment. Every one of us is going to stand before God. I can tell you, as sure as you're sitting here today, you and I are going to stand before Jesus Christ when we die. And that's the day of judgment. And there is only one way that you and I will ever step one foot into heaven, and that is if my account is credited as righteousness. If there's one blemish on my account, I'm not in. Remember when you were younger and you went to the principal? principal looked at you over his glasses and said, you want this on your permanent record? And you're like, not the record. You know, those of us who spent a lot of time in the principal's office, of course, I was his helper. I would just go, go oh, I would go get the kids who were bad and bring them down, right? Something like that. It's all kind of a blur. But we get upset about our record on this life. I can tell you this, the most important record you need to worry about is God's record. Because the Bible says in Revelation 20, one day the books will be opened and everyone will be judged. And here's the deal. You do not want to have your record as you've earned righteousness. If you think that your record is spotless and you're perfect, you are very deceived. Mine's not and yours is not. We're all sinners. We've all broken God's law. We've all incurred a great debt, and there's a penalty to be paid for that. So how could God look at Abram, a guilty sinner, and reckon it to him as righteousness and stamp on his account righteousness? Well, let me tell you how. But before I tell you how, I've got to tell you how he doesn't do it. Many, many people say this. My God is a God of love. That's what I like about him. He forgives everybody. God would never put anybody in hell. He does that with everybody. He just credits it to them for righteousness. Now, let me give you an analogy. If someone beat your mother or my mother, and it was filmed, it's like caught on a security camera, and they stood before the judge, and the judge looks over the bench and he says, you know what, I know you did it and you're guilty, but I'm a loving judge. And so... I credit it to you as righteousness. Let's just forget it. Come here. I would be going over the bench because that is not a just judge. God is a holy God. He's not just a loving granddad in the sky. So, so what God does 
is sends Christ to this earth. And all of our sins that we committed against God that deserved punishment were taken by Christ on the cross and paid for. So that when you believe in the Lord like this, he doesn't just go, oh, I'm a God of love. Don't worry about it. He looks at Christ and he says, I'm satisfied that your sin has been paid for. And now I can credit you with his righteousness and you can enter into heaven. You can stand before me blameless because of your faith in Christ. Somebody say amen to that. Now, there's a millions of pe- there are millions of people in America that don't get this. They do not understand that salvation from God is by God's grace. It's a gift. It's not what you do. It's what Christ did. Christ paid for your sins. But you automatically don't go to heaven because of that. You must, like Abram, believe in the Lord with your heart and your soul. Committing yourself to him. This is why we call it giving your life to Christ. You are now trusting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you're willing to act on that faith. So that's why this is such an encouraging verse. The book of Romans says, Righteousness does not come by works, but to him who does not work, but believes in God who clears and credits the ungodly with righteousness, your faith is counted as righteousness. That's why the New Testament authors are so excited about this verse. Throughout the whole Bible, there's only been one way to get right with God. It's not try harder. It's turn to Christ as a sinner. Be willing to leave your old life. And believe in the Lord Jesus. And then he credits it to you for righteousness. And now if you're a Christian, your account is cleared because of Christ. That is the great truth of the Bible. That's the great message of salvation. Salvation is credited to us for righteousness. Now, Abram is still kind of worried about this. A, a, a word from God is, 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 should have been enough. But we've done this, right? Say to your friend, hey, you promise? Go, yeah, I promise. You go, Even when we're little, we'll say things like this. Yeah, but we've got to raise the bar here. Do you cross your heart? Do you hope to die? Would you be willing to stick a needle in your eye? I mean, who made that up? That's morbid, right? But, but, but what God does in the Bible is sometimes, rather than just promise, he will make a covenant. Now, back then... A covenant was a very unusual arrangement. And what we're going to see here is something really weird to us. They would cut an animal in half. They might take a, a heifer or a bull, cut it in half, right? And we know this from extra biblical literature and other passages. They would cut an animal in half. And I know from animal rights people were like, ah, right? But get past that. They would split this animal open, right? And then they would walk between the animals, the, the carcass cut in half, and they would say, may God do to me the same as those animals. So you didn't do this lightly, right? This was like serious business. When you, and, and literally in Hebrew, it says you cut a covenant, right? So this was a, a practice back then that, that, that people did. So let's look in verse 7. We have just learned that what characterized Abram is he's a believer. He believes in God and God has forgiven him. So the Lord wants to encourage Abram and he wants to encourage you this morning. Look at verse 7. So he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And Abram's like, yeah, yeah, I know. But, oh, Lord God, how will I know that I'll possess it? So he said to him, 
bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Now, we just read the next verse. Then he brought all these to him. Whoa, simmer down. This isn't, hey, run by the store and pick me up a, a, a quart of milk, right? A three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old goat, three-year-old ram, turtle dove, and a pigeon. That probably took quite a while to go get, you know. Like, he, he was very rich. He had all of these animals. But just to go and find, you know, how old this one? Is this okay? Just to do that, you know, don't just read. Then he got them. Like, just think of, so Abram, what are you doing? Why are you, what's the rush? Where, where are you going with those animals? Gets all these animals together. Verse 10. Then he brought all these to him, and he cut them in two. And he laid each half opposite the other, but he didn't cut the birds. We don't, I'm sure maybe somebody knows why he didn't cut the birds. But the point is this. Abraham knows what's going on here. He goes, I get it. We're going to have a covenant. Now, what they did, though, back in Bible times is humans would do this, is both people would walk between the animals. Both. Because you're both making a deal. You're both guaranteeing, hey, you can trust my word. Because we're both going to walk through here and go, may God do to me as he did to these animals. So keep that in mind. So Abram cuts the animals, and he's waiting, right? Verse 11, the birds of the prey came down on the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Well, vultures don't wait, right? Vultures don't wait. So these vultures, these unclean birds are coming down and trying to pick away at, at this this covenant that God's making. Now, it's interesting because why does Moses bother to add that? Like, you know, why doesn't he just say, oh, and there was a lovely laurel tree in the background. We don't know, but some commentaries have suggested that these unclean birds, God was allowing this to happen as an illustration of how the enemies of God are always trying to attack God's work. Now, We'll hold that in suspense, but certainly that's a biblical truth. And Abram's driving them away, but it's getting dark and nothing's happening. Verse 12. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. So so what's going on here? He's in this deep sleep. Now, we've all, you ever been somewhere where it's so dark? You know, especially when you're out in the woods or something, and then all of a sudden, like a hair stands up on the back of your neck, and you suddenly just become really afraid, like fear comes over you, right? Darkness can be a very scary thing. So suddenly this deep, terrifying darkness falls upon Abram, right? Now, again, we're like, well, God, wh- why? why? Why would you, you're trying to comfort this guy. You're trying to give him good news. Why would you let this fearful darkness suddenly impose him? terrifying right well keep reading and god said to abraham suddenly out of this darkness comes a voice know for certain abraham mark this down right put this in your day timer that your seed will be strangers in a land that is not theirs where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years wait wait hang on god i left ur of the chaldees because you told me to go to a different land And you would give me seed, which, by the way, I don't have any. And then I get there, and you say to me, your seed, which I don't have any yet, are going to be strangers in a foreign land for 400 years. What? 
this isn't what we originally talked about. Where, where are you going with this? Right? Now, keep reading. But I will also judge the nations whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions, with great possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Now you stop and you go, did he just get good news or bad news? I mean, think about that, right? God has already told him. He knows. God said, walk around. This is your land. And you're going to have descendants. But now God goes, but by the way, your descendants are going to have to get out of this land for 400 years. Now, what we know from when we keep reading is the children of Israel had to leave the promised land and go down to Egypt for 400 years. And let me just say this. It was not fun to live during those 400 years. There were believers during those 400 years. They were living in Egypt, oppressed, persecuted, hated by the Egyptians, living out in the heat and, and, and the mud and, and making bricks for Pharaoh. And it was horrible. And you're going, God, why would you let some of your people suffer like this? Right? I thought you were a good God. I thought you made good promises. 400 years, that's a long time, and they're going to be oppressed until God raised up Moses, remember, to lead them out of Egypt. But you know, they're, they're, that's a question you and I should be asking today. Because while we're sitting here in this comfort, right, if you pay attention to the news, especially when they're giving you the, the real news, there are Christians all over this planet who are being persecuted, killed, oppressed, tortured, famine, hungry, suffering deeply. And you're going, why? Why? Right? Why does God let his children suffer? I thought we were the good guys. I thought we we're the forgiven ones. But the reality of the Bible is in this life, God's people suffer. This life is not destined to be our comfortable life now. In fact, the Bible says through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. But frankly, as Americans, we should be down on our knees more often praying for our Christian brothers who are suffering and worshiping and thanking God for the privilege of living in this unique time in history where Christianity isn't being persecuted everywhere. But mark this down. I'm not sure it's going to stay that way. And so we better be in prayer. But nevertheless, that's the bad news. The good news is you are going to have a seed. They are going to come back into this land, and you personally are going to live to a good old age and die in peace. Now, let me ask you a question. If God appeared to you tonight in a vision and he said, listen, chill out. You're going to live to be a, a, an old person, and you're going to die a peaceful life. Would you want to know that? You go, yeah, I think. And if, if that happened to you, how would your life be different if, if you had this guarantee from God, you're going to live to be an old person and, and die a very peaceful life? What would you do differently? Would you sort of dial it back and say, why all the stress? You know, why, all, why be so fervent for Christ? I got my whole life ahead of me. But then let's even narrow it down and ask this. If God were willing to tell you when you're going to die and how you're going to die, would you want to know? You see, some preachers take this to ridiculous extremes. They'll say things like this. If you knew that you were going to die today, would you do things different? 
then you should go do them. And I'm going, that's nonsense. That's stupid. If I was going to die today, I would call in to work. And go, I'm not coming in, right? Well, not today because I could come in. Right? <laughs> Tomorrow, right? I'm not coming into the university, right? Secondly, I would call for all my loved ones to be around me. So it's kind of silly to go, but this is your last day. We say, of course. If we knew it was our last day, we would do things differently. But the idea is we don't know when our last day will be. Proverbs 28.1 says, don't boast about tomorrow because you don't know what a day will bring forth. Most people who die had no idea this is the day that the Lord has made, right? Here's a way to think of it. Many of you have a little calendar you tear off the daily pages. Psalm 139 says, in God's book, he has written down all the days that are ordained for us, and as yet there were none of them. So the idea would be just remind yourself daily that this could be your day. Okay? Now, it doesn't mean don't go to work and call your loved ones around you, but live that way. Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. Today has enough trouble of its own. So the number one thing that you and I need to do is to ask this. Am I in right relationship with God? Because that's the most important thing. Right? Am I in a right relationship with God so that if this was my last day, I would be glad to see him? Right? That's the pressing question. Are you ready to leave this world? Do you look forward to seeing Jesus? Or do you go, I need to make some changes? Okay? So the Lord says, listen, here's what's going to happen. But then in verse 16, he says, in the fourth generation, they'll return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. You're like, God, what in the world are you talking about here? Well, remember, the Amorites are the people that are living in the land. Abram's in, in the promised land, but he's surrounded by Amorites and Canaanites. Now, these are godless people. These are wicked people. We read about them in the book of Leviticus. They sacrificed their children in fire to their gods. They committed gross immorality with animals and homosexuality. They were brutal, wicked people. But notice that God didn't go, I'm killing them all. He says, I'm going to give them 400 more years. So, so Abram, I'm not going to drive them out right now because their iniquity is not yet full. And, and what that means is that God is a very patient God. The Bible says God is not willing that any should perish. He longs for all people to come to repentance. But what happens is we confuse his patience with his absence. You can push his buttons so many times before he goes, oh, you're full. That's it. That was your last chance. And so there's sort of a, a sobering reality there. Look how patient God is. He's like, I'm going to wait. And that's why when you read the story of Moses and they go into the promised land, don't go, oh, this is so cruel. They're, this is what they did to the Native Americans. This is, it was very different. These were godless, wicked. And I'm not saying Native Americans were Christians. I'm just saying what went on in the promised land when, when God finally exterminated them and told his people to do that, it's because their iniquity had offended him, and they'd reached their limit. But then God does something even more odd. <laughs> I would have expected at that point him to say, Abram, take my arm, and let's walk through the covenant together, and let's promise each other to be faithful. But instead, look what happens. Verse 17, it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. And we always have to remind ourselves, stop reading the Bible in the 21st century. This was not a Kenmore stainless steel oven, you know, okay? 
So we go back to say, what would that have meant back then? It was probably some sort of a clay pot that, that, that th- there's been extra biblical literature. They had some sort of, it was actually a pagan ritual where they had sort of a smoking pot and a, and a burning light. And so it was some sort of this ritual of, of, a, of a pot that was used to, it, it could be, a, a, I don't know, firing kiln or something, right? And then the, the, the flaming torch is is keeping the fire going in the oven. And you're going, okay. So then it says, these things passed between these pieces. You're like, Pastor Tom, explain that to me. And I'm going, well, all I can tell you is my personal opinion is that it represented God. But don't ask me how it was a smoking pot and a flaming torch. There may be, I, I couldn't find any real, like, yeah, this is what it was. But but the idea is, I think what Abraham was saying is, seeing is God passing through the covenant. God says, this is my covenant. You're not doing anything. This is entirely my unconditional covenant, where I solely am making a covenant, and I'm passing through it. Now, why didn't he just appear as God? I don't know. But I think that's clear, that God is saying, it's my covenant. Look at verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. See, prior to that, he had promises. And promises are good. But covenants are better. And God bound himself by covenant to Abraham. But you know what? Lest we miss this, God binds himself to us by covenant. When Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. And Jesus doesn't ask us to, to do something to get saved. He paid it all. He passed between the cross and suffered God's wrath so that we can freely come and receive by faith the new covenant. And then God credits us with righteousness. And so this chapter ends with God saying, to you I've given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river. Kenite, Kenizzite, Kadmonite, Hittite, Perizzite, Rephaim, Amalek, Canaanite, Gerasite, Jebusite. It's all yours, Abraham. I just made a covenant with you. So what are we going to do with that? I want to suggest there's a couple things that you and I could think about as we read this great chapter. Number one, I want you to stop and ask yourself, what are you afraid of this morning? I mean, fear is such a common thing that we all struggle with. Some of you are afraid of your health. You heard that dreaded word cancer. Some of you are afraid of your finances. I don't know how I'm going to pay the bills. Some of you are afraid of rejection. What if my spouse doesn't love me? What if my boyfriend... Some of you are, are afraid of losing a loved one. Some of you are afraid of mental illness. We're, we're fearful that maybe our kids will, will bury our kids or, or we're going to lose something or we're going to lose someone. I mean, we live in a world because of sin that brings fear. And that's normal, right? But God is coming to us today, whatever your fear is, Maybe it's your fear of God. You're like, I don't want to go to hell, whatever it is. And God is coming to us today, and he says, as he says to Abram in verse 1, don't fear, Abram, don't fear, beloved. Now, why? Because look what he says. I am a shield to you, right? Every night when Abram laid down in his tent, knowing that the Canaanites, the Amorites, any of them could attack him, God goes, don't fear, because I'm a shield to you. If you've ever encountered spiritual warfare and, and seen some of the demonic manifestations, that's scary. 
And God goes, don't be afraid. I am a shield to you. And maybe you've never come into this dimension of looking at God that way, but it's a really cool way. The Bible says as Christians, we increase in the knowledge of God. And so add this to your praise and repertoire of how you think about God. Don't just think of him as your father. Think of him as a shield to you. And God's going, I got this. Nothing that Satan brings at you. Nothing that this world can throw at you. I'm there. I am surrounding you. This is a neat theme if you wanted to do a study. Many of the Old Testament saints called God their shield. David did in Psalm 3. He says, Lord, I will not be afraid of 10,000 people if they gather around me. Because you, O Lord, you're a shield around me. You're my glory, O God. You're the one who lifts me up. And so we learn to, to realize that God is there for us. I don't have to see him. I don't have to feel him. He promised I am a shield to you. And so whatever Satan's bringing at you today, find comfort in saying, he can't because God's my shield. I love those type of analogies. There's another one in the Psalms. It says this, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and they're safe. Whatever you're afraid of today, run into the tower of Jesus and picture how safe you are behind that shield. I am a shield to you, God says. Don't be afraid. Secondly, God said to Abram, your reward shall be very great. Now, you and I need to wrestle with that. Do you believe that? Do you believe that your decision to follow Jesus Christ has resulted in a very great reward? You're going, my life's not going real well. Where's my reward? First of all, your reward that will be very great may not be in this life. And the question is, are you willing to wait for that reward? Because don't forget what just happened to Abram. The king of Sodom offered him all the rewards of the world. Here's all the gold you can want. And Abram goes, no, I don't want that reward. I want that reward. You see, this is what it means to be a Christian. In the book of Hebrews, there's a fascinating verse about rewards. It says, Moses grew up in Pharaoh's palace. But when he grew old, it says, by faith, Moses chose not to live any longer in Pharaoh's palace. Instead, he chose to suffer with the people of God. You know, what kind of a moron would leave the palace? He had everything, chariots, gold, women, anything he wanted. And he goes, now I'm just going to go out there with the Jews and get beat on. But this is what it says. He was willing to forsake the pleasures of sin because they were only for a season because he was looking to the reward. He'd rather have Jesus than silver and gold. He'd rather have Jesus than riches untold. He'd rather have Jesus than wealth and land. He'd rather be led by Jesus' nail-pierced hands. Is that you and me? Or are we settling for some cheap substitute? You can't give up that. Drinking, partying, sex, smoking weed. I can't give that up. Really? You can't by faith turn from that by the grace of God and say, I want what really lasts, Christ. He's my reward. And I will wait knowing that Christ is a very great reward. Third thing, though, to think about is this. That Abram's faith, this beautiful verse that says, Abram believed in the Lord and he credited him for righteousness. That's true of you. But you know what? The Bible says, by faith, when Abram was called, he obeyed. So here's a third thing to think about. Real, genuine faith 
stomach. Right? So, so don't just go, oh, I raise my hand. Right? That's not faith. Faith in the Lord believes that Jesus died to save you, accepts his gift, and then acts on it. You say, well, what would that look like? Well, first of all, if you say you believe in the Lord, the first thing God wants you to do is to confess that. The Bible says in Romans 10, 13, or 10, 9 and 10, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart, not just your head. Make that 18-inch decision that says, this is willful. I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, and I want to be saved. And so if you've made that decision today or recently to trust Christ, in just a moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity to come and publicly act on that faith and confess that before others. And then if you've done that, if you haven't been baptized, you go, oh, yeah, I don't get saved. What? By faith, Abraham, when he was called, he obeyed. And so maybe there's something God's asking you to stop doing or to start doing. That's a faith thing. You trust God enough to say, God, I don't want to sin anymore. But if you say so, by faith, Abram, he obeyed. And you're like, yeah, but, but Tom, you, you got to understand, if I, if I obey God, I might suffer. It might be hard. I might have to give up something that I really like. And I go, yeah. And you could choose not to do that. You could say, you know what, I'd rather just stay in the world. Well, you could choose to do that, but Jesus says, what good is it to gain the whole world and lose your soul? And as a Christian, being in America with all the comforts, you can choose to just be mediocre, to really live for stuff, to stockpile your stuff and just kind of go through the motions and be lukewarm. Or you can live by faith and you can obey and, and ask God to use you and follow him. And I get it. It's hard. And sometimes our faith wavers and we struggle. And that's why we have passages like this. So here's what I want you to close thinking about. Okay. You go, God, I want to obey you. I mess up a lot. And God's going, I know, but it's not about you. And you go, yeah, but God, you made a covenant with Abraham. And Jesus this morning would say, yeah, I made one with you. Remember when I hung on that cross? So every time you begin to waver or worry or fear or wonder, what are you going to do, God? Go back to the cross and picture Jesus saying, this is my covenant, which is with you. And then trust him afresh. Believe that you are forgiven, that he's credited it to you for righteousness. And that he'll never ask you to do what he won't enable you to do. And you'll live your life for him. And you'll always be kept by the promise that Christ made that covenant with you. And then one day when you leave this world beyond what we can even imagine, the Bible says the sufferings of this world aren't even worthy to compare to the glory that is revealed to us. And God is saying to you and me, your reward is very great. Don't walk by sight. Don't walk by your feelings. Don't walk by your emotions. Walk by faith. Trust me and do what I'm leading you to do. And you will find that I'm faithful. So let's close in prayer. As we do so, I, I want to do something. I do this once in a while. I don't do it all the time. Every once in a while, I like to give people an opportunity to profess their faith in Christ. And so what I do is I ask people, if you've made a decision, if you go, hey, you know, God spoke to me. I believe in Christ as my Lord and Savior, not just here, but here. And I'm trusting him, and I believe he's forgiven me. The Bible says you should confess that with your mouth. Now, in the early church, they would give an invitation, and they would baptize people right then. 
we don't have the baptisms every week. So sometimes people have to wait a long time to make a public profession of their faith. So every once in a while, I'll just give a brief invitation that says this. I'm not going to drag it out. But if, if you believe in the Lord and he has credited you with righteousness, then he wants you to make that public. So I'm going to ask you to come and stand with me as we sing. You don't have to do this. This doesn't get you to heaven. But it's, it's a wonderful way for you to act on your faith, to say, yes, I want to identify with Christ. If you've never done that before. Now, this morning when I gave that invitation, there was like four or six people came forward. So we never know. There may be nobody. There may be a bunch of people. That's God's work. But this is an opportunity for you to come as we just remain seating. And we're just going to sing Amazing Grace. But don't, don't let Satan win this argument if you're like, oh, if God's speaking to you and you say, I want to publicly identify with Christ. I believe God. I've been saved. Come and stand with me as we sing. Let's sing.